What's up, peeps? My name is Mugun. And I am Prash. And welcome to another episode of Two Brownies and a Mike. With 2BAM, we keep conversations real. With real situations, real people, and unfiltered content for your listening pleasure. In today's episode, we have a really special guest who agreed to be on our show and talk to us. To me, this dude is a guitar god with his insane guitar solos and unique styles of playing. We are talking about none other than Santiago Dobles from the band Agora, which is based in Miami, Florida. I have first listened to Agora's album Formless back in 2007 and boy did it blow my mind. There was just something about it that was out of this world, something about it. Ever since, I have been an avid fan and a listener as well and their new album Antheogenic Frequencies is purely an instrumental album that is a must-have for any heavy music fan. I think what's truly interesting about Agora is their sound. With each album, they have produced various styles of music. There are so many elements that keep the listeners wanting more. Now, I really enjoyed that same album, Mogun, released in 2006, December of that year, Formless is brilliant. And when you passed that song, that album over to me, just truly cemented how much, number one, we love fusion music. And in this album, how incredible the fusion of, I believe, spirituality, which is blended very effortlessly in their songs. Emotions run wild with this album. That's for sure. Well said, Prash. I mean, there's just something about it, right? There's, mm-hmm. When you hear some stuff, sometimes you just get goosebumps and this one does give you that effect as well. And it's so unique how they actually had female vocalists for their first two albums. I mean, there are a few bands that have done it in mainstream rock and heavy metal music, but not many have done it well, in my opinion, like how Agora has. Also, the inclusions of Eastern sounds, like you said, with Indian instruments and even jazz, they add to the vibes of the overall feel. And you know, Prash, there were so many times I ended up getting goosebumps, man. So many times listening to, especially their first two albums. I mean, if you're a music fan in general, and if you dig into a song and break it down and process it in your head, Agora is a must listen. So, I mean, perhaps, you know, sometimes I even repeat it in my head over and over again and feel certain emotions. And that is what Agora's music is for me. Indeed, Mugun. We have been following Santi on Instagram and Facebook and have seen what a jack of all trades this man is. From guitar playing to practicing traditional martial arts and lifting weights, Santi knows what a balanced lifestyle is. Thus, we thought he would be a perfect guest for 2BAM as we love all things music and beyond. We have so much to talk to him about, so let's get straight into it. Horns up for the one and only Santiago Dobles. Hey Santi, great to have you here on Two Brownies and a Mic, bro. And thank you so much for joining us, man. 
Thank you. It's more like three brownies because my skin's brown too, buddy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, Santi, with you know, we really thought of having you on board because, man, I've always loved Agora and we've always loved Agora. And, you know, we've been listening to your music for many, many years now. And wow. I mean, being being from a Hindu cultural background, right, that word always sends uh, shivers down my spine because Agora yeah. came from the word Agori, who technically are this group of monks who dwell in cremation yep. grounds and act the complete opposite of what society demands. Um, what was the reason behind choosing the name for the band? That's exactly the reason for choosing the name of the band. <laughs> <laughs> because mm-hmm. uh, when I was young, um, well, uh, it, it, it goes really deep, but but let's start where it started. I um I read a book. It was called Agora, and it was about uh, these Agoris in India, and it just blew my mind how how these people were, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, they had this kind of um, obviously they were very austere yogis, very hardcore, but they were also very hardcore in the the side that people would consider black magic or or shamanism, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, it just resonated like, wow, like something in me felt connected to that, you know. And uh, then now we'll go deeper. My, I have a, an uncle. He's a little bit crazy, but he's, he's a cool uncle. He uh, always dabbled in shamanism, you know. And since yeah. I was a little kid, he used to whisper in my ear, Om Namah Shivaya, you know, yes. all the time. Yes. A little baby, little boy. And little kid, he was always talking to me about Shiva, 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 you know? And uh, so I always resonated with this, you know? And um, I, like I said, as a teenager, I was fascinated with martial arts and fascinated with yoga. And because I couldn't find a martial art that I liked at the time, I went into yoga and I got hardcore into Hatha yoga. From there, I had some Kundalini type experiences and... um, then I got deeper into Kundalini meditation and tantric yoga, and that kind of got me into the shamanism side. And then I kind of come full circle when I started learning Penchak Silat. My mm-hmm. teachers would also show me the shamanic side of Silat, the the pre-Islamic Silat, you know, the the stuff that yes. came from the jungle, you know. And um, so I've come full circle with that, and I've come to just have a love for. That type of stuff. I mean, maybe not as extreme as the Agoris as they pointed out to be, but I think, um, you know, to me, any real shaman is both light and dark, you know, is, is like we were talking about uh, earlier. The, you know, you train, you look like a Jedi, but you train like a Sith and you can do both. You can handle both the problem, you know. Well said. Well said, Santi. And it's amazing to see how you embody that as well, my friends. It's truly interesting hear how how you came up um, with the name number one and uh, number two how how you feel that you you can be that person inside and create music um through that same way santi we've seen agora transform over the years be it lineup changes or musical direction a lot of talent and musical style is is unheard of in in heavy music world making and agora is in that way is very unique and special could you tell us your journey with Agora since its inception back in 1995 um, and the various lineups? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, so I'll start where it started. I, I began recording music 
I think it was about 15. I bought a four track and I started just writing music. You know, I was big into guitar playing. I wanted to be like Eddie Van Halen and like Steve Vai, you know, that kind of thing. I was big into Eddie Van Halen, Steve Vai, Yngwie uh, um, Malmsteen at the time, you know, George Lynch, Nuno Betancourt. Those were the guys that were like, oh, my God, at that time when I was a kid, you know, I'm, I'm an old fart. You know, so <laughs> and the 80s were still prevalent. Um 80s, early 90s, I was listening to guitar stuff all the time. Then I uh, I started getting into heavier stuff like Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax. And then little by little, when I got into high school, I got into the death metal stuff as well. Like Death, Human, you know, the Human album, Spiritual Healing album, uh, yes. Arcus, uh, Atheist, Cynic, um, Iron Maiden, you know, you had, I liked the thrash. I liked the, the Pantera type stuff as well. And then I, I liked death metal stuff. So, so I had on one hand, you know, the guitar world type thing, the guitar hero thing. Right. And then on the other hand, I had all the metal stuff that just didn't give a shit about anything, but just raw power. Right. And then, um, through my, my parents, my dad and my mom, my stepdad, um, I was very influenced by classical music, jazz, fusion, and quality pop, you know, like Sting, like uh, Peter Gabriel, um, things like this. So man, my palate musically was constantly listening to all of that, you know, it was like a big pizza with all of it on top, you know what I mean? And uh, so I grew up with that, you know, as a kid, I started with classical music because of my parents, and, and I also started learning classical music. And then once I got to rock guitar, that was it. I just wanted to play guitar. But um, so Agora was born out of all of that, really. When I went to Berkeley in Boston, Berkeley School of Music, yes. uh, I met another guitar player that was very good. He's still very good. We're still good friends, Max Diable. And we kind of like, we didn't fit in with what the school was doing. So we would just practice and practice. We were always trying to compete with each other, but also we were trying to dominate all the rock guys there, you know? So we were just learning and learning and constantly studying and shedding. And I was writing music. So that's where Agora started. And it was funny because at the time, the drummer was Chris Penny, who later played in Dillinger's Escape Plan. Look at that. Yeah. And then uh, let's see. So from there, when I left Berkeley, I came back to Miami and that's when I connected with old friends of mine, one of them being Sean Reinert from Cynic, because during high school, I met Sean and Paul and Jason from Cynic and Tony Choi. And I've known them since I was 15. And there was always a, a, a friendship and a relationship there because my drummer in high school used to take lessons with Sean. And my other guitar player was taking lessons with Jason. And I took lessons with Paul. So we all kind of knew each other, you know, and mm -hmm. Cynic would do local shows. So we'd go to the local concerts. And Sean and I remained friends, you know, for a long time. And then when I came back from Berkeley, I showed him the music I was doing. I asked him if he wanted to play. And he was like, yeah, because at the time he wasn't doing anything with Cynic. Cynic had broken up and um, he was going to University of Miami. So we just started doing demos and recording and I started getting label interests. And then from there, that's how we got to the point where we did the first album. Um, and my sister sang this other guy, Charlie Ekendal played guitar as well. And he, he comes from a Swedish, he's Swedish. So he had that Swedish death metal type vibe. And so all of that kind of brewed together, you know? Awesome. Well, that's, that's great to know, uh, Santi. Like, I mean, some of the names that you mentioned there, like, uh, how your music actually progressed, um, you know, when you listen to rock and then went on to metal with bands like death, death is, uh, to me, it's like. It's they are the gurus of uh, death yeah. metal, 
And yeah, I was. Um, he Chuck Chuck is huge for me, man. I mean, in terms of songwriting and composition and guitar riffs, Chuck was it for metal for me. He's still my favorite, you know. And um, his death really affected me. Um, I don't. A lot of people don't know this, but we were in contact because Paul played for Cynic. I mean, for Death, obviously, with Human. And I remember sending Chuck music and trying to get the gig. I actually wanted to play guitar for Chuck. But at the time, he had Shannon Ham, who's a friend of mine as well. Shannon is, was with Chuck until Control Denied. But Chuck was sick. And so Chuck, you know, obviously passed away. So I never got a chance to play with him. But I think it could have happened. You know what I'm saying? So, yes. yeah. you know, to me, that would have been a dream come true. Maybe not in this life. Maybe in another in another plane of existence it, we it never will, know it will, my friend. that's yeah, right santi yeah. <laughs> um yeah. santi uh personally i want to say a big thank you for the formless album because um to me that album is more than music it's oh, uh, yes. it is spirit spirituality to me man because um i get goosebumps every time i listen to songs like fade moksha or even formless um yeah the whole album just seemed to have been a concoction of emotion enlightenment and even talent were you and um the rest of the guys going through some kind of a major breakthrough or kundalini awakening at that point spiritually because um, I, i did feel something there well i i had gone through like i said i i gone through all that stuff as a kid like like 18 16 17 18 19 i was having a lot of experiences with that and and not with any drugs i hadn't done any drugs so i hadn't it was all natural you know from doing meditation at the time of doing formless i was doing a lot of retreats meditation retreats like a lot and i was yes. training uh buddhist tantra and tibetan tantra from an actual tibetan monk and so i was learning a lot of tibetan shamanism and a lot of that obviously affected psychology influenced a lot of things plus i was doing my martial arts so i was reading a lot of things on taoism reading a lot of things yes. on 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 zen and and what they call uh like bonpo bonpo meditations and i was big into studying bonpo again because bonpo is like shamanism it's kind of like the tibetan version of the agori type thing you know so that album man really came out of that and then I looked at the guitar like a martial art. So for me that was like the peak of having chops, you know what I mean? Oh, um yes. so that guitar, that album man it was like I was on fire with with playing and practicing and the whole band was really tight because we were rehearsing a lot. And I think everybody was going through their own personal um growth, you know. Alan was really trying to prove himself and not be under Sean Malone's shadow, you know. um yes. Sean Reiner is always amazing so you know he was going to play great and Gian was trying to prove himself also so Gian on drums was he played on half the album and Sean played on the other half and um all the faster songs were Gian you know and he really uh stepped up to the plate and I had taught those guys some qigong and some basic meditation breathing exercises so we kind of all did that stuff but not formally it was just kind of like oh here here's something to play with you know and i think it ultimately encompassed the whole band naturally you know um yeah, unfortunately that lineup did not continue but yes. um but you know that album's magical and it, and it really is i mean i i tell you we pour i really pour a lot of love you know soul energy magic whatever you want to call it everything i know and understand is in those records especially the last one and so yeah we we really yeah. look at it like an offering you know to me the the music is a mandala and yes. it's a, it's a, it's a mantra and a mandala if you understand that 
and yes. and that yes. music can take you on a journey. So yeah, that's that's the that's what it is. But you know, that's a little bit deeper than what most people want to know about the music. They just want to talk about the music. But but I'm glad you guys are open to that because that's really what it is. Amazing, man. <laughs> I think it's it's just amazing um, where that album took me. Like it took me to places. You know, I, I was floating at you know some of some of the points, and um, I could really relate to some of the songs as well. Like. Maybe you could tell us a, a bit about the song um, "Fate," because to me, yeah. that's that's a masterpiece. Uh, starting with you in a flamenco style, um, and then the emotions behind the singing and lyrics that that's follow. Actually, but, you know, that flamenco is actually my cousin Roly. He he's an amazing flamenco guitarist, so I had him record okay. that. Um, what that song, man, is really deep and special, especially now more than ever, because that song is about death and dying. And I wrote that song because at the time uh, my grandfather was dying. And so I wrote that song after going to visit him for the last time. And, and my father and I and my uncles, we went to, we were at his deathbed until he passed. So when I came back, I wrote that song based on all those emotions and feelings. And the idea of the spiritual part of it was, you know, like in, in Bompo and in, and in, and in yoga, the idea of transcendence after death, you know, they, they call it in Tibet's foa or poa, which is where the, the seed of the light of the body leaves and it goes out through the crown chakra and it, and it takes off, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of that song was the essence of my grandfather moving to a higher plane. And, and anybody who's dealing with death, the song's written in the point of view of the person who's grieving the person dying, but also helping the person dying move on and, and letting go so that they understand that this is fading. It's okay. The next, you're going to keep going. You know, there's another journey after this. So that's, that's Man, where that, that piece came from. That just gave me goosebumps because, you yeah, know, like same. the lyrics, lyrics just um, sort of uh, float with like what you just said, because um, it's like giving that comfort and sending them on yeah. saying that it's completely okay. You know? Yeah. yeah and, and you know, the, the song hit me even harder now because sean reinert passed and uh you know sean yeah. was a brother to me and the song even means more to me now because he played on that song and clearly everything that's in that song is what i'm living now with sean's passing you know so that was a big big that hit me hard this year you know so thanks uh, for sharing that santi you know oh, i think it, it, it's really important for those listening and, and now as morgan and i are learning as well um, how how much you pour into your music because rest assured that transcends Santi when we listen to it on on this end and and again speaking to you today is is very special to us um, knowing your music um, knowing how much you give into it is is amazing. It, it's um, it, and I tell you what I, I never force anything. If it's yes. supposed to be, it flows and it's like and I know it's going to sound a little cheesy, but we it's really channeled, you know. If it if it feels right, we do it. If it doesn't feel right, we wait. You know, and that's Intuitive. that's always been the way to do it. Yeah. Amazing, amazing, Santi. Just just the way how life should be lived, my friend. Agora's first two albums, Santi, had female vocalists who were very talented, we believe. You mentioned yeah. one of them was just as I understand it was it was Danish Tarivero first album and Diana Sarah in the second. Um Correct. both singers we believe had, had a very, very, very cool operatic style. Reminded me a lot about how Ronnie James Dio went when when he started 
um, his album back in the day. I loved yeah, the yeah. Music and, and I really enjoyed how, how, how that came across in the albums. Is there a reason why you did not continue um, with the tradition of working with female vocalists? Okay. Um, well, let me start with each one. Each one, and I'll tell you a little bit about each one. They're both very special and they're both, to me, great singers. Danishta, unfortunately, she's my sister, by the way. Uh, unfortunately, when we recorded that first record, she was sick and she had a, a flu, you know, and she was very sick. And so it was very hard for her to record that record. But because we were under time restraints and we had paid for studio time, we couldn't go back in the studio to record. And it, we did that album analog. It wasn't done digital the way we do records now. So yeah. that record is completely old school. You know what I'm saying? In terms of the production, everything. And when that record came out, the reviews were so harsh on her about the vocals that I think she just kind of felt like, ah, I'm going to move on to something else. Now, again, this is me expressing it. Maybe maybe one day she'll chime in and she'll express what she felt. But yes. it almost felt like her heart wasn't into it after that. So she moved on to do something else. And she she tours. She has her own music now. She does like this really bizarre, cool, um, experimental sound, reggaeton type stuff. And she sings. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's really crazy. It's kind of like Nine Inch Nails reggaeton type stuff. But anyhow, so she does her own thing and she tours and we still see each other at family events and stuff. And she's open to doing Agora stuff and maybe we will in the future. We, I don't know that yet. Um, but we, at the time, we needed to find another singer. So Diana came in and Diana sang. Now, both Diana and Danishtar were classically trained. So they both sound kind of more operatic and they're both... Uh, you know, alto soprano and that kind of range. So they they both fit really well. It's very ethereal, you know? Um, yes, yes. And I think that had to do with the time. Danisha and I were listening to The Gathering at the time. At, well, really, listen, there was no female metal bands. It was only The Gathering. And then we came out. We were out before Luna, Lacuna Coil, before Evanescence. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, awesome. we were yeah, exactly. second band, you know what I mean? And I remember the gathering contacting us early on, like saying, oh, wow, it's great. You guys are doing female vocals and things like that. So I always liked the idea of having the female vocals because it balanced out with the heavy. It was like the yin and yang, you know? So anyhow, on the second album, Diana did great. At this time, we had a little more of a budget. And Neil Kernan came to, re to record the vocals. He was uh, the engineer, and he helped me produce the record. He's, uh, if you know about Neil Kernan, he mixed the, the, the um, Dawkin albums. He mixed the Mahavishnu records with John McLaughlin. He mixed Hall and Oates. He mixed um, the, I'm trying to think of, oh, Queensryche, of course. Rage for, Rage oh, yeah. for Order. So this guy was, you know, he's just a master at what he does, and he really helped me get the best out of my guitar and um, the sound that we were looking for at the time. And he really helped Diana record her vocals. And so the second record is definitely more polished in my opinion. Some people didn't like that. They kind of liked the first album better, but I think it's just an evolution. You know what I'm saying? So anyhow, um, Diana, she sings amazing and she's great. And we tried to get her to sing on the third record. She did a couple songs but I think she was busy going through stuff in her life. And I know she was moving out of the state and it just became complicated. And so I just let it be, you know, she, it, like I said, if I let it flow, if it's flowing good, great. If not, then I don't, I move on. You know what I mean? 
and and I wish her the best. I wish Danisha the best. I don't know. Maybe one day they'll sing on an Agora record. Maybe the both of them will. We don't know. You know, that's up to the universe, really. So uh, that will be special. I yeah, can imagine be one hell of an album, my friend. <laughs> the the third album went instrumental because of that. We just didn't. It just didn't yeah. feel. We had vocalists come. We had two male singers try. We had. Um, we auditioned singers. Danishta and Diana were going to do stuff. The timing never worked out. I even had, I offered it to Mike Patton. He turned it down. I offered it to um, to Jeff Tate from Queensryche. He turned it down. So I said, you know what? Fuck this. I don't need a singer. We we, we, we can, the, the music sings, you know? I don't need a singer. Absolutely. So that's why we went that way. I just got tired of waiting. You know, it was literally 12 years of sitting around waiting for singers to get off their ass and step up to the plate. And I said, you know what? This is not happening. So I followed my instinct and I said, listen, we're going to do an instrumental record. It can't hurt. Let's see what happens. You know, those that yeah, will, dude, I mean, those that like it, will like it. Those that don't, well, I'm sorry. Maybe the next one, I, I can't please everybody, you know, <laughs> dude. And right. that's great about your approach with everything as well, because, you know, just going with the flow sort of, always comes up with new substance and that's what keeps you very interesting as well you know i've i've got to say uh, you know i'm uh, santi i'm a sucker for melody and a lot of the songs that i like listening to are, are pretty much uh, journeys and yeah. one such track that stuck with me um by agora is uh frames from the yeah. first uh self-titled album the way it started, the way it ended with those beautiful chords and pianos at the end, uh, piano uh, notes at the end just baffles yeah. me. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about your songwriting process in general, like for songs like these and what are some of the uh, Agora songs that actually mean the world to you? Well, um, I'll start with the songs, the, the, the writing process. A lot of times, okay, so Agora 1 actually was written this way. I programmed the drums first, and I would go beat by beat or, or segment by segment, and then I would actually program the bass with MIDI, and then I would write the guitars on top of that, okay? And then the, my sister would come in, and we'd work on the vocal melodies together, you know? Um, that's how the first record was written. The second record was totally different. I said, fuck it. I'm not programming anything. I'm going to let everybody do their own thing. And what I did was I just made the tightest, baddest riffs I could come up with that would just feel right for each song. Yep. And then I would write it that way. And then everybody came in and did their drums and bass and everything on top of that. I liked the way that worked out. And then the third record was the same way. I wrote all the guitars and then drums and bass came afterwards. Um, for frames, okay, so the first record, the song structures are very open. You know, they're a journey. Each one's like a little journey, okay? So it's not like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, verse, chorus, chorus type thing. There's a little bit of that structure, but not really. The second record is more of that, like song structured, like, you know, intro, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, chorus, chorus. It's more... Um, standard you know what i mean the third record is more now like the first one in terms of structure so it's more open okay it's more, more of a journey so i kind of went back to that so to me the last record is really a combination of one and two 
if you look at uh, frames and you look at um, formless, the actual song formless, and you look yes, at yeah. cave in the new album, they're very similar in structure. Okay, they're very fluid and they move through things. Of course, frames have some vocals, so most vocal songs are going to have a verse and a chorus, the kind of thing, you know. But uh, at the end of frames, it just flows. It goes from the solo to the bass solo, and then it just flows into this clean uh, vocal line with these like arpeggiated chords. And then the piano comes in. The piano was actually Sean Malone. He played that in the studio. And then the string sounds are the Chapman stick running through an Eventide 500 uh, multiprocessor. And it's like these harmonizers that keep looping and looping with delays forever and ever. And we just let that run and then we, you know, faded it out. But basically, I, I've always loved the idea of, the, and I get this from the jazz side of my life, right? Like the fusion and the Mahabharata orchestra type thing. I love the journeys, you know? The, the, yeah. the endless songs that they just keep going and they, they travel. But it's not contrived. Like you hear like, and I love what yeah. they do. They're great. I, I love Dream Theater. I love their first two records. Um, I even like A Change of Seasons. After that, I stopped listening to them. But but those records, they, they're very contrived at how they make their journey. Everything's like, okay, this part is like this. This part's like this. It's very, very stiff, you know, to me. I, I like it to be more fluid, right? Like a waterfall coming down a mountain and, and then that water is traveling everywhere. So so that's kind of how we approach Agora. It's like more organic in that way. You know, like you have odd time, but the odd time, you don't feel the odd time, you know? Or yeah. the Agora thing is the even time sounds odd. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really interesting to see that. It's the way, the way that the way they've done it, again, knowing that there's so much emotions and, and stories that, that run through with it. Yeah, um, Santi, that that's really special. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's really cool. I'm glad See, you guys understand it because a lot of people don't. don't I'm, very few people have this conversation with me. That you know, it goes over their heads. I think music is all about emotions, man. Like, um, you know, yeah. if you if you're not feeling it, then there is not yeah. much point of listening to it. That's that's what I believe in. You know. Yeah, I had you a, mentioned. I had a friend I worked with in California. I was doing a lot of session work out there for guitars. Um, there was a period where I lived there for like two months doing recordings for people. And I had this one producer I was working with and they told me, look, it's got to make people cry or it's got to give them yes. goosebumps. If not, it doesn't work. And and I've always lived by that. If it doesn't give me goosebumps, like if I do a guitar mm -hmm. solo and it doesn't make me have goosebumps, it's not a good guitar solo. You know, nah, so that's, it's true. that's true. As you yeah. said, it's taking you on a journey, Santi. And, and rest assured, my friend, you've done so for everyone else that has listened to your music. So in oh, the thank you. transcended, my friend. Um, well, we've seen amazing lineups that, that Agora has had over the years. Um, and you mentioned earlier about Sean Reinert that played drums for the first two Agora albums. We're very yeah. sorry to hear about his passing. Um, yeah. understanding that he, he played in, in, in that one of America's best with, with his album, Human, as well. His work there was legendary, Santi. How much he, or, or how well he played in the song Fade, as you mentioned. How was it like working with Sean? And could you share with us some of the great memories that you had with him? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, it was a dream come true to play with him. There's 
there's three things I well, there's a lot of things I love about Sean, but Sean is a guy that a lot of people know him as a drummer, but really Sean could play anything good. He could play piano as good as he played drums. He could play bass as good as he played drums. He could play guitar if he wanted to. Sean was a multi-talented musical genius. That's the first thing, right? So Sean understood everything I was doing. And not only that, he would kind of subtly point me in the right direction. Like I got into Alan Holsworth because of Sean. You know, Sean would tell me, oh, you got to check out Alan Holsworth. And and he would talk to me about the concepts that Alan was doing. And mind you, I'm 15 years old and he's kind of pointing me in the right direction, you know. Um, so when we started playing together and, and talking about music and stuff, I, I came to him like, man, I want to do something metal, but I also want to do something that's very artistic in the sense of like Mahavishnu Orchestra, Alan Holsworth, and and very, you know, pushing the boundaries with feeling and, and with... Uh, something different you know and so he was very open-minded with it and and supportive and that's the thing i loved about sean he supported what i did you know where a lot of people that are my peers some of them support it and some of it kind of took envy you know Mm -hmm. sean was never like that sean was very open and supportive and 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 sean to him he would do it whether he was getting paid or not you know what i'm saying so of course yeah of course, we took care of him anyways because he was my brother and I wanted to make sure he, he got taken care of. But, um, you know, I miss him, man. He, he was a big influence and a, and a mentor and, and a great friend. And, and uh, Agora's magic is also his and mine. You know, I, I have to tell you that the backbone of that at the time was really, you know, Sean, myself, Charlie, the other guitar player, and Danishta, you know we all had the same kind of vision to kind of do something different musically, you know? And I think Sean at the time, he was already sick of the metal thing. He didn't want to really do metal. He was looking to do something different. And so for him, Agora was, yes, of course it had some roots in metal, but it allowed him freedom. See, like in Agora, I didn't tell Sean what to play at all. I told Sean, do whatever you want. And, you know, that came out. I mean, there, I, to me, Agora is really jazz drumming. It's not really metal drumming at all, you know, especially that first album. So, yeah, surely, surely. Um, yeah, you know. And at the time, Sean was playing in a reggae band and blues band. So he was already changing his palette. You know, I mean, he could play anything. He could play any style he wanted. That's the, the magic of Sean, man. I mean, some of the memories I have with him. We recorded that album live. Him and I played together when we hit record. So all the riffs and all the, a lot of the leads, I played them at the same time that he was recording. Yeah. So that album's really special because it's almost as live as it could get. You know what I mean? There's no editing, there's no editing on the album. We didn't use pro tools. Everything was recorded to two inch analog tape. Um, It's, it's to me, it's probably one of the most honest, and real metal albums out there because a lot of albums are edited you know i'm not going to say names but like you know there's famous death record that everybody loves and they say that this drummer is the best in the world and i'm not talking about sean and that drummer they had to basically uh they resampled the drum the kick drums they basically added them in afterwards on a drum machine so there's a lot of fuckery that goes on on those albums you know yes. some people call it editing but you know it's fuckery at the end of the day it's like it's <laughs> fake, you know what i'm saying so That's right yeah we did not do anything fake we never have 
you know, everything you hear on those records is real. We fucking played it. You know what I mean? So to me, that's why it's special. And, you know, I love Cynic. I love Death. I love everything Sean played on. But the thing that touches me the most is that, you know, in Agora in existence is you have Sean doing a drum solo. And it really came from him. It was his thing, you know? And um, I remember we had a fight in the studio, not not Sean Reiner, but Sean Malone and I had a fight in the studio because Sean Malone wanted to cut that drum solo out. And I was like, no, fuck you. I'm not cutting that thing out, you know? <laughs> and um, I'm happy that I stood my ground because it's just awesome. Yes. Sean really put magic. He poured, he poured love into it. He didn't do it for money. He did it because he loved it. And he loved the project and he loved the people he was working with. So... To me, Sean is is as much Agora as any of us are that in there, you know, and uh, he he's immortal. You know what I mean? He's immortalized. Yeah. So in many ways, you know, of course, with Cynic, with Death, with everything else he's done, he's always shined, you know. But um, mm-hmm. to me, he's like the Thor of drums, man. And uh, man, and that's that's great to hear as well because um, you know the the musical musical quality that you guys have always. Um, kept throughout the years it's just it's just astounding to us yeah because i mean agora is a super band with uh great musical talent like for now it's uh yourself um uh alan uh was it alan yeah alan uh, alan goldstein Goldstein, yeah and matt thompson um, matt thompson yeah the three of you um we we read that you went to the Berkeley College of uh, Music in Boston, Santi. Was yeah. was that just you, or was that uh, the other guys as well? That was just me. Matt Matt went to UNT, which is an amazing jazz school in Texas. Uh, Matt went there. Um, Alan is pretty much self taught, but Alan's father was a famous jazz saxophone player, oh, and right. okay. so he got all he got a lot of his knowledge from his dad. Um, Alan is extremely versatile. He can play also any style on a bass. And to me, he's more multidimensional than, than the other bass players that have played. Um, you know, this is the lineup that I, I wouldn't change. I mean, to me, Matt Thompson is, is you know, obviously nobody will ever replace Sean, but yeah. I don't think anybody will ever replace Matt either. Does that make sense? To me, they're, they're yeah, both no, just they're both giants, you know, and I and love I mean, Matt Thompson's um, playing. He's very powerful. To me, he he has a lot of Sean's feel, but he's got a lot of power, you know. So I, I really like that. And Matt's Matt's also played for uh, King Diamond as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, he still plays with King, and he tours all over the world. Well, obviously because of the COVID nineteen crap, he's not doing anything with that. But but I'm sure once things open up, King Diamond will go back on tour. But yeah, Matt 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 is King Diamond's. Uh, main drummer for sure and um santi could you tell us a little bit more about your learning experiences um from the berkeley college uh and also your 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 dad gustavo dobles who's also uh an established musician yeah my my um my dad you know as you know he played piano and he did all the symphonic uh orchestration on the new album for us so he's kind of like uh he's a guest member but he's also like a um you know he he's it's like he's also part of it as well you know what i mean 
Um, so we consider him an active member, a music, a music member of the consortium. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> my dad, my dad studied music at the Conservatory of Music in Boston, and so he studied classical music. And I learned a lot from him growing up. Like we, he would make me study sight reading, counterpoint. Uh, we, he would give me Bach pieces to analyze and to write the counterpoint, like old school, you know, piece of paper and, and pencil, you know. Um, no instrument. You have to use your mind and the pencil and paper. So that's that's the kind of way my dad does music. And when I went to Berkeley, I was able to test out of a lot of stuff, like the basic requirements, because I'd gotten a lot of that knowledge from my father. So mm-hmm. for me, Berkeley was a love-hate relationship because at the time I was too immature and all I cared about was being a better, faster uh, guitar player. I was all about the techniques, you know, and I didn't care for jazz at the time in terms of playing it. I love listening to it, but I didn't want to play it. And Berkeley at the time was not so embracing of the rock guitar player or the fusion guitar player, you know. Um, so for me, I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like I was learning a lot, but I didn't feel like I was accepted there. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so I took the time there to pick the brain of the people who I thought were good. And I, I also embraced the things I wasn't good at. So I would actually pick the brain of the jazz guitar players. The, I was studying with, uh, Mashihasu. Bruce Bartlett, these are professors there, Mark White, bebop players. And I was learning, you know, they would tell me, oh, you've got all the fireworks, but you have no meat and potatoes. And I didn't know what the hell they meant until now (laughs) in the 40s, you know. Now I'm applying the last, I want to say the last 20 years of my life, I've been applying everything that they've showed me, but I apply it my way, you know. So now I've kind of do it my own way. And that's basically playing through changes, analyzing chord structures, creating my own scales, creating my own harmonies within different scales, very much like Alan Holdsworth type uh, school of thought. And um, I look at what scales work over what chords and what scales work over all chords. I try to find the science behind it, you know, and I apply that to Agora. You know, I applied it to whatever I play on. I, I did a lot of that on the New Pestilence record. I learned all that from Berkeley, but at the time I was so young, I didn't appreciate but now I really appreciate understanding the jazz theory that I learned over there. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I studied, you know, film scoring there as well. And, and that helped me do the stuff I do in the t- TV industry. Um, but I also studied sound engineering at another school. And so, you know, all my, my studying helped me to be where I'm at. Um, it's kind of strange, but it all ties back into Agora, but it also it feeds into Agora, but it feeds into the career I have, which is, a, you know, my actual career as a sound engineer, you know? Yes. So, yeah. uh, it, all, it all helps each other, you know? So for, for me, Berkeley is, it was a very important part of my life. I wish now I would have gone and really spent all the time to, to, to finish through what I needed to finish over there. Um, but at the time, I was young, and, and I remember I got offered to go on tour with a, a pop band, and I went on tour with them, and I started making money, and then once I started working, I just left school. You know, I should have continued, but um, at the time, 
my immaturity and my ego didn't let me understand what I understand now of what I've gotten from that school, you know? So it's a great school. And I think I encourage anybody to go learn music, even if it's just private lessons or even if it's, you know, you want to go to music school, by all means do it, you know, and, and pick the brains, look at it differently. You know, I mean, you could sit there in the classroom, that's all great, but try to pick the brains one-on-one of the people that you want to learn from. You'll get more out of that and try to get mentors, you know? So uh, it would help me at Berkeley actually was my first guitar teacher when I was 10, this woman named Robin Stone, she's a professor at Berkeley. So when I got to Berkeley, I had already known professors. So that kind of helped me to get, you know, more uh, information and things, you know, I don't know if that it, makes sense. It's truly, it does, Santi. And it's, it's truly incredible to see how, how what, what you said earlier that was profound to me was the 20 years of, of your life now um, after learning that back in the day and, and how that has been transgressing into your current music it's incredible, and not only that, Santi. What, from from my understanding, in our current in our conversation, um, it is the other aspects of your life, including your your yoga, what you learned in your earlier years with your meditation, um, your breathing exercises, your your current love for for martial arts, and especially with Panchat Silats, those heavy ass weights that you have uh, that we see in your Instagram that you carry every day. I love how that has made you, number one, a well-rounded person. It's evident in your conversation, sir. Um, secondly, how you transcend that into your music and, and that we feel it on the other oh, end. Man, I find that incredible. But a little bit more on the martial arts, Santi. Right. See, I'm originally from Malaysia and, and, and my, first, my first ever um, time that I came across Pancha Silla was the Raid series, right? Garen Evans Fantastic and Explosive Crime Action Thriller. Yeah. What, what a film. That and the sequel was amazing. And just to see how those, those, the, the, the actors um, got choreographed their scenes to the Pancha Silla is yeah. what made it. It made it amazing. So in your thoughts, quickly. Your thoughts on the films, and secondly, how did Silat end up? Silat okay, end up so, in your part so of the world. So I'll start with that movie. Uh, in 2010, yeah. I got a phone call from a guy named Chechep Raman on Skype, and Chechep is in the movie, but this was before right. the movie was made. Chechep was asking me to share Penchak yeah. Silat Serak with him because Pen- Chechep, when he was a teenager, went to Holland to study with a man named Dolph mm-hmm. DeFries. Dolph DeFries is a Sarak teacher, yes. and he is the nephew, or the son, sorry, of one of my teacher's teachers. So he's the cousin of my teacher. Yeah, so Chechep, in the movie, you see Chechep doing a lot of Sera and Chimande and Panglipur, and which, you know, they're styles from Java. And uh, you see Iko Suwas, I think is his name, doing more like a Harimau, doing like a Harimau type style, which is more more Sumatran style, you know? Um, Obviously, in Malaysia, you have different styles too, where some of them are Pukalan, different animal styles and whatnot. But anyhow, long story short, Chechep and I have a connection because my teacher is connected to one of his teachers. So... Yeah, at the time, you know, he was not doing movies, but then he got into movies and he just blew up, man. They put him in Star Wars, they put him in John, they put him in John Wick, you know, you name it. So he's Mad Dog, the the guy with the long hair, right? He's he's Uh, he's the uh, the guru. I don't remember if he's Mad Dog. No, he's the bad guy. He's the bad guy in uh, 
in um, the first and second raid. Guess yeah. what? Right. Yeah. I'm with you. Okay. I'm and with now you, he's, he's, yes. he's also in the John it, Wick movie, it, I think. It, but anyhow, um, fantastic C-Lot player and, and a really nice gentleman. And uh, he's a great C-Lot man. So anyhow, I'm happy to see C-Lot in the big screen. But I haven't seen... Okay, yes, so indeed. I'm a little biased because I haven't, I haven't seen yes. a type of C-Lot yet on the big screen. A little bit. You're starting to see some of the actors in the West doing some C-Lot, like, like um, Keanu Reeves, uh, the guy that played uh, Helmsford, the guy that played Thor. He did a movie right now yes. in India, Extraction, which is fantastic. There's a lot of C-Lot. One of my, yes, there is one of my that's, teachers that's single, taught single. Wesley Snipes. Mm-hmm. And... I actually gave Wesley Snipes uh, C-Lot, like a, not a class, but yeah, kind of like a class. I helped him out because we were training with my teacher and my teacher put me to teach him. And um, yeah. And so Wesley put a That's little awesome. C-Lot in the movie called Art of War 2. Uh, if, if you watch that, one of my teachers is actually yes. in the movie and, and Wesley does some C-Lot there. So I have, again, I've only seen some C-Lot in the movies. Legend. To me, what I see in the raid one and two, and in the other one, uh, Merantau. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Merantau. Yes, I have. To me, yeah, in those movies, first, yeah. you see yeah. the traditional sea lot and the sea lot that's kind of mm-hmm. modern now in Asia, which is kind of a blend of sea lot with some kickboxing and Muay Thai kind of mixed in there, right? Um, but you don't see the yes. Okay, here's the nitty gritty for me. You don't see the sea lot that was around before World War II. And I'll explain to mm. you. You know, I'm sure yeah. you know, sea lot and Kuntao, they, they're like brother and sister, you know? <laughs> okay, so it, we have to understand mm-hmm. the, the history. In Indonesia, you had, you know, sea lot before Islam, but they didn't call it sea lot. They called it Ulin, like the fighting style mm-hmm. of whatever city they came in. So, for example, if you lived in uh, New York, it would be Ulin, New York. In other words, fighting style of New York, right? The word Silat didn't come till later when the Islamic yeah. came in. Uh, Silat's an acronym. You know, Shahada, I think it's Shahada Ibarra Laku Akida Taqwa. So it's like an acronym of these of these Muslim principles or Sufi principles. And that became the name Silat, right? But before that, yes. it was actually either Kuntao or Pukulan or... Uh, the Chinese have a version called Pongjate Salate, which is like a, you know, everybody in Southeast Asia is doing some type of Silat or Kuntao, you know, in the old days. Okay. It was a nomadic, it was a nomadic yes. system, right? So anyhow, in Indonesia, um, yes. <clears throat> up until World War II, the Dutch were there and the Dutch mixed their Silat with dirty boxing from the Dutch and fencing. And so this became its own system. It became uh, it became the Dutch Indos, right? But when World War II broke out, the Dutch did not accept the Dutch Indos, and the Indonesians did not accept the Dutch Indos. So they kind of became isolated, and um, they were called half-breeds, okay? Now, this is an interesting story because yep. Eddie Van Halen is, okay, it's connected to Eddie. Ed- Eddie's family, Dutch Indo, Eddie's mom went to school with, my teacher, Uncle Willem de Tours. So the, they're, they're all Dutch Indos, right? And oh, the Dutch Indos are a little crazy. They're, they're amazing, but they're, like I said, because of their culture, they were not accepted by the, hall, the Dutch and they were not accepted by the Indonesians. So they came up with their own sea lot style that basically was what they call like a killer of systems. 
okay? It's like a C-lot, a C-lot that didn't have any rules, yeah. you know? There's no, it wasn't based by Islamic rule. It wasn't based by, you know, cultural standards. It was just designed for, for I, I, I don't want to say it, but it's true. It's a killing art, you know? And it was designed for, for yeah. getting the job done and survival, you know? So you see a little bit of that in the raid, you know, but it's very big movement because of the camera, you know, and the camera doesn't take, uh, it won't capture it very yeah. well. Um, I'll tell you a little something. I got auditioned to do um, a movie with Jason Statham back in, yeah, this was back in 2005 well, awesome. or six. Um, and I went and auditioned and they, they, yes. they picked me. I, I ended up doing like three, of the filming sessions, but they ended up going with a guy that um, looked bigger and had more muscle. He looked the part more, but they were going to pick me to do the bad guy. You know, the other guy could do backflips. Yeah. I couldn't do the backflips, but they liked what I did. And they actually took some of the C-Lot moves and they did them with Jason. Um, so it's kind of interesting, but yeah, I, I almost got into the film awesome. industry with that. Um, who knows? Maybe down the road, maybe one day I recently, I got, Never too late. Yeah, I got Never contacted late, by something. a guy in Indonesia to maybe do a film, but who knows? But um, I love Sila. I love Sila like you can't imagine. So for me, it's in my heart. And uh, my That's teacher, awesome. Uncle Willem de Tours and his family, they were the first Dutch Indos or the real, the first Indonesian descendants to bring it to the United States back in the 50s. So after World War II, they went to Holland, and then from Holland, they migrated to the U.S. Similar to Eddie Van Halen and his family, they migrated to the U.S. And, um, and the rest is history, right? So now you have Dutch Indos influencing the world. So, you know, um, yeah. that kind of fire and intensity, what I was talking about, is the same fire and intensity you hear Alex Van Halen and Eddie Van Halen. That's that Dutch Indo volcanic energy, you know? So the, the Dutch Indos are like that, especially with their martial yeah. art. So anyhow, to me, there's a difference between Indonesian Silat, Malaysian Silat, and Dutch Indo Silat. They're all good, you know. I just like, I, I, I learned from the Dutch Indo and they adopted me as a family member. So to me, that's the way I, I, that's the way I roll, if you will. Beautiful. Dude, that's, that's pretty interesting, like um, how you mentioned about um, Eddie Van Halen and stuff. It, it, oh, it, yeah. it actually shows in their music, you know, like when they actually play... Yeah, guitars and drums, that fire, like yeah. you said, that spark. Yeah, it all makes sense. Yeah, though. he's a Dutch Indo. I never knew about this. His family, uh, his parents, they were all friends. Okay, so the Dutch Indo community in the United States, they all knew each other in the 50s. They all came on the same boats over here, you know? So pretty interesting yeah, stuff. Right. It's related but not yeah. related, you know what I mean? It influences it is, son. Dude, um, you seem to know how to run your day very effectively. Um, you're a father to a couple of kids and you manage your music and other hobbies as well. How, how do you do it? Um, Does it take a toll well, on you? Well, for years, I, I didn't sleep a lot. I would only sleep like four to five hours if I was lucky. Now I try to be a little strict about my sleep. So I try to sleep mm -hmm. five to seven hours. If I can eight, I will, you know. Um, so what I do is I, you know, work comes yes. first, right? Actually, I learned this from my Silat teacher. Uh, there's four things in Silat. You know, the creator or God, whatever you want to call it, the universe, the creator, um, work, family, and then Silat. Because if you don't, you know, if, if you're not in tune spiritually, you're not going to be fit enough mentally to go to work, right? 
And if you don't go to work, you can support your family. And if you don't have your yeah. family, you're wasting your time with your sea lots. So you have to have those always together, you know? So I, I've, I've kind of molded my life around that. Beautiful. So, you know, for me, I spent already my youth practicing guitar, you know, four to eight hours a day, you know? Um, now I don't really practice that way. I just try to practice a half hour or an hour, but really intense. And I work on one thing only. So I really, I learned that from my C-Lot. From my C-Lot, I work on one thing and I just work on that one thing for a while. You know, I applied that to my powerlifting. Like I, I squatted every day for a year and seven months. Um, pretty heavy every day. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. It might have been done. But it, well, it, yeah. That's then, impressive. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> then I had to take a time off because I had my car accident. But um, I've always applied things like that. So, so I have my days where I go, you know, you got seven days a week, right? So every day I give myself a job, right? I go yes, to work, yes. right? And usually right now, because of the COVID-19, I only work 40 hours a week. But when it's not COVID-19, I work anywhere from 40 to 70 hours a week, sometimes 80 hours a week at my job, right? And when I'm not working, I go in the gym. I go in my house, my garage, and I train. And so I try to do my strength training. I have it like this where I do one day heavy, one day light, one day medium. So that's three days a week that I'm lifting pretty heavy, right? Or like heavy, light, medium, right? And then the other days, I try to do a little something. Yes. So I go in the gym to do something, some type of bodybuilding or some type of, uh, you know, uh, cardio, but not really cardio, more like carrying a weight and walking with it, you know, like farmer's walks and things like that. Um, correct. And then, and then what I do is in between the breaks of that, yeah. I train my martial art or I do some Qigong or, and I always try to do Qigong and meditation in the morning or at night or throughout the day. And so one teacher I had taught me this thing where, you know, people say they don't have time to do anything, right? Well, <clears throat> if you take five minutes out of every hour that you're awake, you're going to have more or less two to two and a half hours. Okay. So, so I well try said. to practice something mm -hmm. or, or study something five minutes of every hour that I'm awake, mm -hmm. whether it's my guitar or my, my, my C lot, right? Um, now, now what I do is to combine things. Awesome. So if I'm training, I'm also listening to a book while I'm training. So I'm studying my mind as well. And with the guitar, I still mm -hmm. practice, but I'll take one thing to focus on and I'll practice that one thing every day for an hour. Okay. And so I bought a little Steinberger guitar and I would take it with me to work. And because of my job, when I'm not on air, in other words, when I'm not mixing a show on TV, I have downtime. So I'm sitting around waiting. Yes. So while I sit around and wait, I practice the guitar. Yeah. So this is how I try to get shit done all the time. To me, I'm Beautiful. always working. Okay. So, and, and to me, it's not work. It's just yes. developing. I go, to, I go to work, so I have money to support my family, but also I have money to invest. So I'm always studying about investing. I'm always studying about you know, how to enhance my life as much as possible. Yeah, so that's kind of the way I do it. And then when I come home, I devote time to the kids and I bring them into the gym also to make them exercise. And then I spend time with them. And, and I try to give them one day a week I rest. So one day a week I don't do shit. I don't do anything. I just spend time yes. with my family. I spend time with my kids. <laughs> you know, I hang out with the dog. You know, yeah. and that day I don't do any kind of exercise other than 
very soft sea lot movements like tai chi kind of things and qigong just to, just to relax um yes. so i do those every day you know but um i have a i don't have like a schedule where everything's written down but any moment i have free i use it to study yes. something or to train or to practice guitar you know what i'm saying so i look at it that way I think of my day as a 24-hour yes. day, right? So I have, in that 24-hour day, I got to sleep yes. six hours minimum, okay? And then after that, I got to work eight hours, mm -hmm. right? And so after that, I got to go train in the gym an hour or two hours, whatever I have time for. And I got to spend time with my kids, and I just try to work it all together. So that's why I put the gym in my garage. I don't go to the gym. I train at home. So for me, this whole COVID-19 thing, um yes. hasn't changed my life you know i'm always i'm always quarantined <laughs> you right. know? I, I live in my cave yeah. you know yeah. what I'm saying? <laughs> so i haven't uh, i haven't stopped working you know so for me this has not changed my life other than other than the fact That's that uh, all corporations right now cut everybody's pay and cut everybody's hours but you know we're still working so thank god that we have work you know and we can move on you know that's yeah. good to hear. Good to hear, Santi. And I think you hit the nail on the head that it's it's not no. it's not about time management, but it's being aware of the time that you have, um, and and prioritizing <laughs> what's important to you. You mentioned one thing about about family. Yeah, and that's key. That's central, right? Um, and if you build your body and your mind around that, um, then that immediately takes you to to another level of being able to produce what you do. Santi and I, and I think that's that's one thing that's really special um, about what you've mentioned today for us. Um, it's 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 incredible to see what or how they're, how the mind and the body together. can come together. They're always together, um, and, and they have to be magic. together. You know, you 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 uh, you have to embrace them both. You know, because otherwise you you, you get it off balance. You know what I mean? Yes. So and plus, like I said, if your if your family's first, yes, they're gonna see what you're doing. Like one another thing I learned from one of my CLA teachers is you lead from the front, right? So if you're doing what you got to do, even though yes. they may not want to, they're gonna go. Oh, he's doing it. It's got to be good, you know. So they're gonna they're gonna get involved, you know. And over time, they start training or they start studying and researching, you know. Like my children, my two daughters, they're already investing, they're already training. They're already studying, you know, so beautiful. I mean, it's pretty cool, you know. I try to be the parent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had great parents. That's amazing. But I try to be the parent even more. Like, I yes. try to be the parent that my parents couldn't be. Like, even though, not to take away from my parents, they were amazing parents, but I want to give my kids even more knowledge, you know. To me, that's priceless. You got to give your children knowledge. The more knowledge they have, the more they can accomplish, you know. Legacy in wisdom. And, and you know, that's I completely a, that's agree, a my friend. Thing, right? The Native Something. Americans had this belief of the, the tribe leader thinks about the tribe seven generations ahead of him. Yes. That's powerful. You know? Anyhow, sorry, you, you were you yes. were saying No, this thank you for sharing. And then that that is special. I, I, I agree from that from that point of view. It's important to think about your legacy for um for, for future generations. We don't know where our world is yeah, gonna yeah, be, yeah. right? Especially post COVID. Um, but understanding that, <laughs> Santi, it's, it's, it's crazy times. In, in our second episode, we spoke to Sahil Makijal of Demonic yeah. Resurrection from Mumbai, India, um, on his thoughts on, on, on crowdfunding. Amazing gentleman. I think you both will get along like a house on fire. Um, and, and what he said about crowdfunding proved a to be a valuable insight for our listeners, especially in the COVID times for those that are musicians 
um, that are listening to this. We are curious on your thoughts about crowdfunding um, for a music album um, and the general direction I, I, of where know, music it's is an interesting time. I think on one hand, we're going to have a renaissance of music because now people are home and they can create, right? So now we're going to have two things happen. Yes. The mm -hmm. fake artists, right? The ones that do fuckery are, are no longer going to shine because <laughs> now when you see a concert and it's the guy doing a Skype concert and he doesn't have his auto tuner and he doesn't have his sound engineer with him and he doesn't have his, you know, <laughs> singer hiding behind the curtain or guitar player hiding behind the curtain, they can't fake their shit anymore. Right. Um, so on one hand, you're going to have <laughs> yes, real yes. people shine now. Right. Which is cool. The other hand, it's hard to make money with music, especially, you know, Spotify, YouTube, and all these companies, man, they're just stealing the artists with the streaming. Uh, you know, it's bullshit because the, the radio industry, you know, when a song was on the radio, you get paid one penny every time it plays, which actually was lucrative because it would pay. But now you get like point zero 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 one of a cent after you have like a thousand hits, you know, and it's not enough for the artist, right? So on one hand, the artist now can do, uh, you know, more content on YouTube, which is cool. He can make money that way. They can do music education. They can put out more records. Um, they can do these streaming concerts, right? So I think the industry is going to change a bit. Now, the crowdfunding, I've never used it. I, I, to, to be honest with you, I don't know much about it mm -hmm. other than from what I imagine is you tell people, hey, we're going to do this album. You guys pay for the money put the money and then we'll put the album together. I think it's pretty cool. But again, I've never done it that way. I've always been old yes, school. Yes. You know, we, we, we do what we got to do. We put it out and then later we collect whatever we can collect and whatever we do collect, we put it back into making another record. So, so that's always how it's been awesome. um, for us. I mean, you know, I've always worked and the band members have always worked and, uh, you know, that's how we've done it. I mean, even now, like I said, music is not my career. My career is sound engineering and, and television, you know? Um, I mean, listen, man, yes. when you, it was very clear to me in 2008 when, when the industry crashed, it was very clear to me that there was no music, no money mm -hmm. to be made in the music industry. So I switched over to television and I switched over by accident, but it became lucrative and I was able to support my family. So I said, okay, this is great. Now I can actually make music for myself and not worry about the money. You know, I have my own studio. Um, I don't have to worry about asking for money to do something. Now, granted, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. So I understand the crowd, the, the crowdfunding is great. Like, let's say you got a band of guys and or, or girls or whatever, they're doing their music and they have no record label, no nothing. Then I think in that respect, fantastic. They have to do it somehow, right? Um, but if you have, if you, if yes. in my opinion and, and in my case, right, music is not my career per se. It's my love. Okay, just like C lot, right? I teach, I teach C lot. Mm. I have yeah. students and stuff. It's not really about money. If they give me money, great. If they don't, great. If I make a dollar, great. If I don't make a dollar, great. I'm happy whether I get something or not. I'm happy to see that the fan or the person who, who has it is happy, right? If, if, if my album can make you happy, mm -hmm. then that, that's it. I did my job as a musician, you know? I, I already divorced myself from the idea that I have to do it to make money.
Now, when money comes in, great, fantastic. It allows me to make more art, more music, right? But my job is still my job. Mm -hmm. I still have my job and I enjoy my job and it allows me to fund other things, other projects. So, so in that respect, um, I have a very different approach. You know, I, I don't feel comfortable with like, you know how these bands do these, uh, VIP meet and greets, like you pay a thousand dollars to meet, oh, yes. you know, Steve Vai or whatever, mm-hmm. man, to me, to me, that's <laughs> yes. like, you know, yeah. that's like going yeah. to see a stripper, you know, <laughs> or, or a prostitute. No, it's just a prostitute, you know? <laughs> It's a prostitute. I mean, look, I I understand (laughs) it. And I know for these guys, it's the only way they can make money now. I get it. And I understand that. And I respect what they do. But that's not me. Mm. You know, I I mean, yes, I love to be touring and making Steve Vai money. Absolutely. But um, at the same time, (laughs) I have a career, man. And I'm I'm okay with it. You know, I get to do everything. I, I get to be you know, the Agori living in the modern world. You know what I mean? So, so That's right. You it's said it. Dude, you said it, Santi. That's, yeah. that, that's great um, words, Santi, because I find that mm. when you have love for something, right, you actually put in, uh, I mean, the output that comes out is really Correct. of good quality. And, you know, you, you just, it, yeah, it's just mm-hmm. amazing how you, you, you said those words because that's where I think the world is heading as well. Um, most most of the music I listen to are from smaller artists or people that are not that famous because I think that there is yeah. a lot of talent out there and it's just not being um, not being uh, put out there as right, much right. as it should be. You know? Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting. I, I think yeah. and yeah. okay, so I'll give you the example of Agora. We've had record labels. We've had you know people involved and stuff. Yeah. It never worked out in our favor. We always got screwed. We always got somehow there was never a real good accounting of how much money was made. And we never got a straight answer. Right. So for me, it was like, fuck, fuck it. This industry is bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So now that my father and I, we have the record label, we, we set up Doblis music, Doblis productions and, and we just yes, manage awesome. ourselves. And now that it's direct, it's actually more lucrative, even though we're not, looking to make it's not about the money you know because now we don't pay uh, a distributor we don't pay uh, you know yes we have a digital distributor um we use cdbaby.com and they do the digital distribution but my point is when we were with a record label and look at this agora one right when we were with a record label in italy at the time Mm -hmm. after record sales and everything i think agora the whole band was maybe making a dollar if that per se okay so here you've got a CD that's selling for like nineteen ninety nine at the time, and the band is making one fucking dollar, you know, and then we never saw the dollar, mm. right? Because you know some bullshit, you know. So mm-hmm. now it's a different story. Now we we put in money. My father and I put in money. We make the records happen, and now we can actually recoup that money, and then we can also cut a check for each band member for based on the on the record sales. You know, they have there's a distribution of royalties for the mechanical royalties, and then for the people who are involved in the songwriting, there's distributions. So now we can actually it's not a lot of money, but we can cut a check to everybody. And and here's another way to think about this, right? So this is my own craziness, but I know it works. Right. Let's say you're a band struggling and you want to make money and you do want to make a million bucks with this industry. Okay. Well, it's going to take you time. This is how you do it. No matter what you make, 
every paycheck or every money that comes in, you take 10% of what you make and you invest it. Don't even look at it. You invest it. You put it in the S&P 500 or you buy, you know, Bitcoin with it or you buy something in an in a, in a, in a index fund, right? That gives you at least 8% annually. And you leave that shit in. You leave it there for 20 to 30 years. Then you're going to have it. That's how it works. Exactly. So, so even if I make five, I don't see it. I put it in. And people don't know the power of investing. Listen, I actually, I learned that. I read um, Warren Buffett's books. I, were, I read books. I also read um, Jack Bogle, who he created the index fund, the Vanguard index fund. Amazing. You know, these are money gurus, you know. And believe it or not, I learned from Steve that lesson. You, you invest 10% of everything so you need. You pay yourself 10%. And after a while, the interest takes over. And that's actually how Steve made his money. That's awesome. Yep, that's a true story. So awesome, awesome, Santi. Um, Santi, thanks for all of that. And to wrap it up, um, please share with us what are Agora's plans heading into the future and some of the interesting products. Okay. Um, well, I hope I didn't bore you all this time. Okay, so so no, no, right now I'm I'm finishing a record for my father. He's got Dobles Ensemble, which is like this crazy fusion jazz stuff. Where I am writing music for a new Agora. I'm also doing some music for a solo album. Um, it's going to be very different. It's guitar music, yes. but it's not like shredding. It's just quality music. You'll see okay. it because it's going to come up soon. And then um, I'm supposed to be doing another record soon with Tony Choi for Synchronicity. I don't know if you heard that record. I can Please. send it to you so you can hear it. I have a link on YouTube. Um, that's a great death metal oh, yeah, album man. and it has uh, no also. and we're doing a second um, soon so that, that's what's coming to they have also a couple projects that I'm doing session work for um, and that's about awesome. it in terms of me. Santi so, you are an absolute <laughs> legend please let us say that because my oh, friend this guy, just this conversation guy. that Regular we've had you- and I'm sure our listeners will agree Number one, you've taken us on a journey since you're 15 years old through your learnings of how to, to understand the mind, controlling your body, through your interesting influences from your father, from the music school of Berkeley, to now on how you're investing your money and your current career and how Steve Y does it. My friend, you've taken us on a journey and this episode is fucking incredible, might I say. Santi, if... If you could leave us with some parting words now, since there are three brownies here, the mic is yours. There's, there's, there's three brownies. Yes, we, we are. That's the right, sir. Please leave us with some burn. parting words. I, I, first of all, I want to tell you I love you guys, and I love everybody who loves Agora, and uh, everybody <laughs> yes. who doesn't love Agora. So love you. And um, thank you, thank you for all the support and the love, and you, you guys have no idea how it touches me. That you guys actually reach out to me and it touches my heart, and uh, I'm happy to share whatever knowledge I have is for everybody, and, and I love to, to share. With you. So thank you for giving me the opportunity, and um, keep listening to great music. Indeed. I mean, there's Indeed. so much stuff out there. Rock on, Santi. This is Mugan and Prash 
signing off from Ronnie's and a Mike Santi. Keep rocking, my friend. Thank you, brothers. Thank you, thank you, thank awesome. you. That was incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>